welcome back to what is our last dance and what i mean by that is this marks the last episode of this season of the triple team podcast as always i'm jared castillo i'm a well i'm a graduating graduate student at usc and with me tonight thank you very much and with me tonight is uh, I'm Daniel Wang. Uh, I'm, I'm a junior at USC. Taj Mayfield, barely a sophomore. Well, yeah, almost no longer a sophomore at USC. And just to put things into perspective, we talked about a lot of different things this these last two seasons. And I just want to get your take on this before we delve into any of the other deeper things. What was your favorite sports moment from 2019 to 2020? 2019 to 2020 that's a that's a hard one uh my favorite moment obviously would have to be zion's debut but probably the moment that i'll remember the most especially with this podcast is um us recording the podcast and the rudy gobert news happening mid podcast and us scrambling to restart the podcast top tier moment of my entire experience at usc well i mean on this podcast that was certainly the craziest but my favorite sporting memory in 2019-2020 actually was outside of this podcast. The uh, playoff game between LAFC and the LA Galaxy. LAFC have, have never won an El Trafico matchup before. And getting the black and gold, getting their first rivalry uh, derby game, derby um, day victory ever, was something I'll forever hold here to my heart as especially as a season ticket holder and especially since it was a playoff game and like it it just just being there live and not really seeing on tv is it just felt so sweet i i would agree with taj honestly the moment that rudy gobert tested positive for coronavirus as much as that sucks for the sporting landscape that was perhaps one of the most i don't know exhilarating moments because we're all scrambling to figure out what we're gonna do what's gonna how we're going to edit things. and You weren't expecting just, it. You weren't expecting it. Yeah, no, absolutely. It was just one of those things that came, boom, right out, out of the blue and smacked you in the face. Out of nowhere, like, of all the people, like, Rudy Gobert? Rudy Gobert? <laughs> like, that guy. Like, it, it just hit... Like, you weren't expecting it. Yeah, and we were even talking about how I think the Jazz and the Thunder were about to play the game. And we were talking about how it's crazy that the game was canceled. And then right as we wrapped up, the news came out. Boom, NBA suspended. NBA season suspended, I should say. And where does everyone go from here, right? Is that I mean, real crazy moment? I, I saw this, this pandemic coming from a mile away months, months earlier. I mean, it's, it's part of the other job I have outside, outside of the media center. So I saw the I saw the signs developing in China in it, and you know, I read on a Reddit um, page one time said they predict it it was gonna sneak up on us in the U.S. and that was that's when like it truly hit for me when when sports start like canceling. Yeah, and even though sports sucks, and we we're trying to find the silver lining to all this, I guess one thing, and you speak about sneaking up sneaking up, Daniel. One of the things that snuck up to us was the last dance, you know, the MJ doc. And I just want to get your guys' take. Did you guys watch the last two episodes by any chance? I did. I did as well. 
favorite episode. It's probably my own least favorite bunch of the series so far. Really? Why is that? Go, please delve into that. I one, I think it was probably like the time spent on things like we already knew. That's been like my whole favorite part of the documentary is learning new things, and we already had like a really great thirty for thirty on the dream team. So the entire like dream team segment was like all old information. It was like a bunch of the same clips from the 30 for 30. And then the whole Jordan gambling thing, it was like, I didn't really see it as a big issue, but I guess it would had to be touched upon. But I didn't, I personally didn't see it as a big issue. So it kind of felt like they were dragging it on for me. But yeah. I'm, I kind of, I, I understand Taj's sentiment. It was, it was a solid episode. Um, I think the previous episodes were better. Um, Personally, my only gripe with this documentary series so far is like we're we're really getting Jordan's perspective, but it's it's delivering on the fact that we're getting new information we didn't know so far. But at the same time, I'm like I would my little it's just a nitpick is I would I just wish like we could have had like Jerry more of the the other side point of view like Reinsdorf and uh, Mr. Krause. And well, two things: one, the Jerry Krause thing. We can't really get into that because he passed away in 2017. So we that's can't. That's true. That's unfortunate. Yeah. So what we have is what we're going to get. And the other thing that I've been really interested about is because Jordan's production company is part of, you know, the, the doc, basically, it just makes it seem like everything is kind of. I wouldn't say dumbed down, but how hard it hits is kind of lessened, I guess, because everything had to go through him in order to figure, in order for them to figure out how the series was going to go, right? So when you guys mentioned his gambling, I don't think that we will necessarily know the full extent of it, especially from this doc, because of that connection, right? I mean, getting out of this doc, like a lot of people were wondering if. It, the true like if he was really an addict or not i mean i still wouldn't be surprised if he turned out to be a gambling addict but like like at the same time since it was his production company and it, it was coming through him like i don't think we're gonna get the full answer ever with some like things the whole gambling thing was kind of disappointing because it was kind of like the same take we've always like we've always heard the same like Jordan take of like I could stop if I want, blah blah blah. Like I thought if they were going to go in depth on the gambling, Jordan would actually admit like, yes, I had a gambling problem or I have a gambling problem, but it's not illegal. Like he said that in the documentary that it's not illegal, so I don't see like why him just admitting that it was an issue, was like wasn't such a big thing. Like it's not going to tarnish his image at all in my opinion but like that part just even getting addressed and that the fact that they focus so heavily on gambling instead of like the not jordan not being involved in social issues which i think is probably his real like big not flaw but like the biggest stain on his like career if you could pick one the fact that they chose gambling over that for the most part was kind of disappointing and you can like tell it was a jordan production at that point i mean in terms of like you're not getting involved, you, I mean, you got to remember, Taj, Jared, it's the 90s were a time where like politics wasn't so volatile. You can't, I can't, I don't necessarily blame Jordan for that. Like when it's all said and done, I, I think 
his career, his legacy outside of basketball will be more in the business realm. Jordan will never be like a Colin Kaepernick or or a Muhammad Ali, where is where what they did outside of the court was like you know social activism, the the progression of, of the of the African American community. I I just think Jordan just that social activism is just something Jordan doesn't really want to get into. And personally, with things with things how volatile things are today, for better or worse, I don't blame him for that ever. Yeah, I don't blame yeah. him for like not like doing like not being more active socially, but I do wish that there was something he would have like expounded on instead of just saying like the whole um, Republicans buy sneakers too, instead of just saying it was a joke. I wish they would have went more in depth. Like they gave a solid amount, but I feel like they could have done more and more of that and less of the gambling. I, I See, see, here's the thing, like Todd Jarrett. I, I, I don't know if you could, I don't know that it's even possible to delve more into that because like, honestly, like, it's not something big to me. It's it's some people just don't. I mean, I know I'm po- more politically active than most of, some of my peers, but at the same time, like some people are just not into that stuff. So I don't know. I don't know. If there's really a lot you can dig in there. Like Jordan just seems apolitical to me. He's yeah, and that's, kind of, and that's kind of what makes the situation a little bit more jarring, right? Is because he's being apolitical at a time when everything is political and him not taking a stance is still taking a stance. And back in the you know nineties, when all that stuff was going down, even Barack Obama said that, you know, he would have liked something MJ to have done something considering his stature, but sadly that's just not the person he is. Jared though, you got to remember though, the nineties, the nineties were in terms of us history, it was it was a politically stable time. It wasn't really volatile. The country the country was in the politically mostly politically happy stable state. We the US just beat the USSR in the Cold War. Is it, it like Jordan was just the product of his own time. So like politics and sports at, at the time like they they tried to be more separate than it is now. That's how I see it. I I agree with that, but I think the reason Jordan got killed so much for like that particular instance is because it was like, as they said in the doc, like it was a a, a potential like first black candidate or whatever, versus mm-hmm. a candidate who showed very racist tendencies. So all, all Jordan basically had to do was come out and say, "I don't support the racist candidate." Like it was the most easy layup to like get, like have some type of social stance, and instead he didn't do it. Well, he said he donated, but. His, I feel like his actual like support would have done more than his donations. Yeah, I, I could see that view. I mean, like I think if I were Jordan, I I would have said more. But that for his time that we use existing in, I don't blame him one bit. Yeah, and considering the immense difficulty of the layups that Jordan makes on the court, <laughs> that that layup would would have been an, a real easy one off the court. Just putting that out there. Exactly. But, but yeah, no, I mean, and you kind of like see it in episode six, if I remember correctly, where all of these things, right, like ending with the 1993 finals, all of these things are starting to build up in Jordan's psyche. Because when you win a championship, you should feel happy, not relieved, right? Or something to that effect. Because one of the things that people were, that I was seeing on Twitter was, 
Jordan, when he won that third championship, instead of feeling happy, he was just kind of, he felt this, this type of feeling where he just was tired and he just felt like everything that was going on because, you know, the Atlantic City gambling thing and everything else was just kind of getting to him. So he was just kind of like, you know what, I just need to take a break. I, this is too much for me. What do it's, you guys think about that? It's not surprising. Uh, I think the fame. Jordan's one of those athletes where, like, he, the 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 awe around him was so strong. the 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 attention caught around so fast and so quick. It it, it it's a, it's it's not shocking at all that it overwhelmed him. And by the way, I mean, the fandomonium around Jordan was insane because, like, we've never seen an athlete like him before. So, like. His the the fandom that surrounded Jordan was more akin to like Michael Jackson in his prime. So it, it's, I mean, like it it probably would overwhelm a single human being. Yeah, I think that was probably that and like the Barkley quotes um, was probably my favorite parts of last the last two episodes. The fact of like how great of a job they did showing like how big of a superstar Michael Jordan was. Like they basically showed him trapped in his hotel room. And then as soon as he came down, he was just mobbed by cameras. And then like, even when he was doing the commercial, it was like, um, you think you want to be Michael Jordan, but would you like last a day? And him just having to repeat that line over and over again, you can see like his eyes just get dead after a while. That was probably the highlight of the whole episode. I mean, I don't know. I don't think human beings in general are meant to take that type of attention like so high like that on a personal note. So I mean, it's it's an interesting thing to look at, and but it's also not shocking at all. Yeah, and you have to take into account that Michael Jordan, in the 1993 like finals, he played out of his mind. He averaged 41 points, 8 rebounds, and six almost 6.5 assists throughout that 6-game series. And that's amazing. And to deal with all the media pressure along with pressure to carry your team, that's, I, I guess in some ways, that could lead to self-destructive behavior. One disappointment I kind of had with this episode, maybe it, it gets talked in the next one, because I heard Seven's, the director's favorite, I read that somewhere. Uh, I wish they would have, because in 1993, after 1993, the reason Jordan retired was because of the death of his father. And I, I, I wish they'd, like, I wish they would have talked uh, something about it in this episode, because I, I know that was the... Uh, the straw that broke that broke the camel's back, and that that literally put Jordan on the bus. I think they'll for sure talk about the next episode. I think they were setting it up this episode, like they had the scene where they had um Jordan's father talking to the media for him and like protecting him. So I think they were just set, setting it up to show how important his dad was. And then next episode, they'll of course talk about what happened. We also have to speaking of episodes, right? We also have to keep in mind that for the first few minutes of episode five, Kobe was there. And yeah, that was good. That was, was go ahead. That was like that was kind of heartwarming to see. It was it, it was obviously um, shot, you know, before the incident. Well, I'm well, yeah, I'm not going to get into that, but it it just kind of showed that even even then, what was it? 1998 Kobe's first rookie first all star game. Right. Correct me if I'm wrong there. Yeah, you're right. But even the the players as you know competitive as they are as accomplished as they are even they knew that in 1998 that kobe was was something else like yeah. 
that was probably like that was such a like just a cool part as like a Kobe fan to see mm-hmm. like like if you're in a locker room if you've ever been in a locker room you know like you're not trying to give the, somebody in the other locker room credit and it's just a whole other locker room just going and talk about the game of a 19 year old and he's all like 30 year olds who've won championships who've been in the league for a while and it's all going crazy about Kobe's game or like what Kobe does or, and Hardy's a killer like that was just crazy I mean, like I, I really enjoyed the Kobe clip in in this one. Is it, it? But you know, it also makes me think about like, I know the story of Phil Jackson is kind of mentioned a lot throughout this documentary, and it's kind of it's kind of crazy to see like you you could get the sense I don't know maybe I'm crazy here I get the sense from Phil Jackson that this could be like the last time ever I coached, but like seeing the Kobe footage, like Phil, like it's it's far 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 from over. And like, there's a whole nother chapter for you. So it just, it just kind of reminds me like, oh, this Phil Jackson has one of the, probably one of the most interesting stories in NBA history. Yeah. From coaching in South America, correct me if I'm wrong there, to making his way to Chicago under Doug Collins and then getting that head coaching spot after Doug Collins got fired. That is one hell of a journey. I mean, and, and probably thinking it was all over after 1998 and then like just two years later. Oh, I mean, you're in Los Angeles, and yeah. you, and you like you don't even know it, but you're gonna win five more rings. Yeah, and with that, with speaking of rings, right? One of hey, the things that Jer- go ahead. Jer- sorry to interrupt. Like, do you know? Like, I think Kobe averaged around 16 points that year, and it was kind of a luck that he was put in the All Star game. I think yeah. I could be wrong. Even though he was averaging whatever he was averaging, he still showed out, right? He still showed. MJ of all people that he was he was next and it's just those things that you see of Kobe like going into the documentary things like that was what I was expecting a real behind the scenes look of how these 90s superstars in this case Jordan conducted themselves right it's some episodes have been kind of like Tosh said kind of like rehashes like the 1992 dream team but it's always great to see this kind of footage. And as a basketball purist, it's things like this that I basically enjoy. And this is what I look forward to. With all this talk about the, the last dance and the dream team, a few, uh, a few days ago, an article came out where Charles Barkley said that he's sad that he won't be able to mend his relationship with MJ. And I guess if you guys don't know, the reason for that is... A few years ago, Barkley said some pretty, I guess, pretty nasty stuff about the way that Jordan was running the Charlotte Bobcats at the time. And I guess that's kind of fair because the Charlotte Bobcats in 2011-2012 had the worst record in NBA history with a winning percentage of about 10. So do you guys think that's fair of MJ to be super condemning of Barkley, even though he's kind of right? I mean, I mean, I, I think it is definitely fair. Uh, Jordan uh, obviously has not had the best time owning a, a team, and I think Char- uh, like Barkley's criticism is valid, but you got to remember, it's also not surprising given the, the competitor Jordan is. So Barkley's not wrong. He's right, but it's not shocking from MJ's point of view either. Okay, Taj, any thoughts? Yeah, I think what Charles Barkley said was the nicest thing you could say about Jordan running the Bobcats. Like, you look 
they were the worst team statistically in NBA history. I don't know if the Sixers like outdid them in being bad, but I, at the time they were the worst team ever. Like they had to change their whole name, had to do an entire rebrand, and then like just the way they're run as a team, they just throw out terrible contracts to aging people, aging players, or players who haven't developed at all. I.e., like Batum or Michael K. Gilchrist managed to get two contracts without proving anything, and then they let when they do get stars like Kimball Walker, they don't want to pay up the super max money, so they lose out on stars. So I think Barkley like talking out against Jordan. And then he did it to me in the most polite way possible. I don't think that should ruin a friendship, no matter how like competitive or how much pride Jordan has. I mean, it it, it really this this isn't really shocking. I mean, because Jordan Jordan is is the ultimate competitor, and there have been multiple times throughout his career and in his life that he because he's so competitive, there he's at times petty, and this is this is was this happened to be one of those instances. So it, it doesn't really shock me that Jordan would act this way, and he is the like he's the he's a prideful, eh, at times arrogant type of person. Yeah, and just so we have a little bit of context, this is the quote that Barkley said: "Quote, I love Michael, but he just has not done a good job. Even though he's one of my great friends, I can't get on here and tell you he's done a great job. He has not done a great job, plain and simple." And Barkley goes on to say that the reason why that is, is because he's hired, he, meaning Jordan, has hired people that basically looks at the entire situation and just says, yes, this is good, this is great, we're not going to push back. So, I, I mean, when you've gone through the last 30, 20 to 30 years, like, surrounded, like, with billboard signs in your name, and, like, you've been talked about this and hailed as this this kind of, like, saint figure I mean, it doesn't it, sh- it doesn't shock me at all that you know a person like that can become a little self absorbed, and thus when it when a time comes to be in this type of proposition, of course you're gonna hire like yes man around you and like and forget that that kind of that kind of not a good thing in an ownership position. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear he doesn't have like the most talented, or he hasn't had the most talented bunch of people up with them in the higher ups. If you just like look at who they're drafting, like I don't think. The Hornets have ever drafted like a guy you've never heard of before. It's always like somebody from a Power Five conference, super big team, like somebody who played for Kansas or Kentucky, or like somebody who just came up out of a Final Four. Like I don't really know what their scouting department does, but that I just feel like they as a whole don't take the team that serious. Outside of, I don't think they take take the team that serious at all, to be honest. I mean, I definitely agree with with Taj. The problem with the the Hornets franchise is that they're stuck in this like middle, this very toxic middle ground. They're they're not completely terrible, but they're they're not great, and that leaves they're in this toxic middle. Like they're they're just it's just very hard to get out of, and I mean it it becomes a very uninspiring product, and it like it's clear it's it's affected the fan base that could be there. Yeah, and the fact is they're not a huge market so no star free agent would want to go there unless you're terry rosier i mean you would have to do a oklahoma city practically you would you would have to build your whole entire team through the draft and and i mean and that takes hiring a good gm hiring good scouts and potentially hiring people that are that would be able to stand up to you but that's that's mj's problem it's a little bit of his ego and that's kind of getting in the way yeah and 
On the topic of executives real quick, Utah Jazz executive Dennis Lindsay just said that Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert are ready to put the COVID drama behind them. How much do you guys buy that, I guess, statement from an executive of the Utah Jazz? I completely buy it. I mean, when you looking back, it wasn't even though Rudy was a bit reckless in this type of situation. I mean, okay, very reckless. It's it's still something no one can really control. Like no one can really control what their body does sometimes, and you can't really control most of the time if you get sick or not. I buy it one hundred percent. I don't buy it that like they just came up to the front office like, yeah, we're ready to bury the hatchet and be friends again. I buy that the front office came up to both of them and said, this is something you just have to work through. Like, we're not trading either of you two. Like, when we talked about it two weeks, two or three episodes ago, I said that you're not going to get the return value of either of them. Like, a trade just wouldn't make much sense unless you can, like, swindle the team like the Knicks, like Jared said. But, yeah, I the trade just didn't make sense. I think this is, like, something that came from the front office. Just told them, to, like, you guys aren't going anywhere, so you might as well fix it yourself. I mean, and... I mean, I think there's bigger issues to fight over than an issue like this, where like it, it wasn't necessarily Rudy's fault. He could have been, he could have, he could have like gotten it from somewhere else, and not maybe he got it from not touching those microphones. It it's unpredictable how he got it. Yeah, and the unpredictability of the situation. Excuse me. That's kind of what makes everything so strange in the sports world especially in the nba because there's so many things going on but nobody really knows anything concrete that's why the nba is partnering up with mayo clinic to help promote efforts toward a vaccine Um, according to sham sharania of the athletic the purpose of the effort is to better understand prevalence of coronavirus among players and staff and promote long-term efforts to develop a vaccine so i just want to get your guys' thoughts on the nba partnering up with mayo clinic I mean, I I like the move. I mean, I I have doubts whether this will um will get this will get us the vaccine because the NBA put the money in there. I mean, but this will definitely help in like in the long term trajectory. So I mean, I have nothing bad to say. It's a great thing. It's the smart thing to do. And Adam Silver, I trust, and once again, he proves why I trust him. I think if you're like a player or a coach watching what's going down, you want your leader or your boss, I guess, to um, be working with health officials in the situation. And that's what the NBA is doing. I mean, arguably what Todd said, I mean, Adam Silver, like, keeps proving time and time again, in my honest opinion, my, um, he's he's arguably the best commissioner in all sports. Hmm. Interesting take on that because um, I don't know if you guys saw, but Adam Silver said that NBA facilities should be reopening on Friday, May 8th. And kind of a weird thing with that, teams are not to test asymptomatic players. So with all this Adam Silver talk going on, what do you think about him deciding that obviously would in states where, you know, the safer at home orders have been lifted, what do you think about him saying, you know what, it's time to open up these, uh, these training facilities, even with all these precautions in place? Do you think that's a smart idea? Do you think that he should be doing something else? What do you guys think? I'm just a little bit weirded out by the idea because that, I mean, I will say that. It's just like, you got to remember with this disease, a lot of the people who are infected, they don't display symptoms at all. So, I mean, I mean, that is a little odd. So that's, I mean, that's what I have to say on that issue. 
I think this is more so for like players who don't have a goal or a court in their house or wherever they stay, and they they're like fiending for a workout and to get back to the game. I think it's for them, but I don't think it's going to be. I don't think that many players are going to be involved with it because I was reading a um quote from Mark Cuban where he said like certain players have certain players and teams have like spoken to him and said they won't feel comfortable until everybody can get tested that's going to be in the facilities. So if there's a limited amount of testing, then I don't think obviously those players aren't going to feel safe and they're not going to actually show up. Yeah, and it's an interesting thing you bring that up because I was actually uh, I was reading an article related to baseball and they were just having like a conference call and one of the players on one of their one of their teams actually brought up the the question that if they do resume play right what happens if a player who's playing gets tested and they end up being positive what happens then i mean this is this is why this issue is very tricky so i mean I mean, I think some sports are gonna have it easier than others. Um, sport sports with like with fewer with smaller rosters will have an easier time. That's why of all the sports, I think the NBA has the best opportunity, and baseball and I think football will have the hardest time because they have the the largest rosters. Yeah, I think it'll depend on roster size. But if a player tests positive, like during the season, I think it's going to be the exact same thing that situation that we just saw happen with Rudy Gobert. Everything's just going to get shut down immediately. But there's nothing else you can really do. Yeah, and with regards to you know to t- the testing, I saw somewhere that I think the NBA needs about fifteen thousand tests, while other sports need about fifty thousand. So that kind of just shows the difference between the leagues and what they kind of have to do in order to get everything just squared away, just for players just to even play in empty stadiums. I mean, I've heard it a, a couple times before. I think restarting sports may be harder than people expect and this is this the numbers kind of prove that yeah i don't think people realize how many like individuals are involved with the success of sports like you might just see the people in the court on the field i think that's it but even like besides them the coaches the training staff make sure they're healthy then the guys like even as far as like valet parking a car like there's just so many people involved it's going to be a while before sports are normal quote-unquote. Even though it's going to take a while for sports to be quote-unquote normal, I've I read somewhere that the White House is apparently going to help out the NBA with its restart whenever that is. And I'm curious to know, do you guys have any faith on what will happen, if it will happen, and how effective that will be? I think there's obviously political reasons why there some people would want this, but I actually do believe that I think the administration is genuine in wanting to help the NBA restart. You, you got to remember, um, the some politicians want normal life to restart again, and, and it's ultimately good for for you know the economy, and you know that there's some political consequences to that. So I mean, and sports is is a some is a, is symbolic of like of everyday life. Honestly, it's like one of the the, the strongest symbols. So I think they're obviously going to have – they're going to want to help the NBA restart. Yeah, it's a billion-dollar business. The government is, like, all about trying to get these businesses back restarted, save the business. So it's not shocking. But if the White House is, like, willing to throw money at sports, then go for it. I mean, it seems like a positive. Yeah, and the only thing kind of we have to look 
forward to, I suppose, is how they would actually go about that. Because if you look at all the sports leagues around the world, right? Like if you look at the KBO, they got their situation sorted away and they got everything kind of normalized, I guess, because we've been talking about this concept of normalcy, right? But yeah, the KBO, the Korean baseball organization, they're playing games, but without fans and umpires are wearing gloves and masks and players aren't high-fiving. They're only doing fist bumps and elbow touches. And do you think that would be a route for, you know, sports in America to go through? Because it's working over there, apparently. So, I mean, most most definitely, I think inevitably the situation is going to get better. And there's already signs that it has. Um, I mean, when the league, when the NBA restarts, and I think they will be the first to restart, um, of all the uh, suspended leagues, definitely expect like you know refs to wear masks, and maybe even the player every like you'll get that that um that player every once in a while that that's willing to wear the mask themselves. So I mean, I I think what the KBO is doing is good. It's setting up an example for other leagues to follow. Uh, I don't really know if well, obviously the no fan part is going to be adopted, and I could see I don't really see players wearing masks on the court. Or even referees, those masks are pretty hard to like breathe in at times. So I can imagine like running for forty eight minutes in a mask like that. So I don't know about that part, but uh, yeah, that's. I think it's interesting just watch the KBO and how they continue to handle everything. Then that'll probably provide a good image of how other leagues go about it. I think every league is just watching how they handle it right now. Yeah, and one of the leagues that's been watching what's been happening in Korea is the MLB. Um, they actually have, you know, they plan to, to give a, a proposal to the MLBPA, the Players Association, within a week for a potential start to, this, to the season. And that's according to Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic. And Jeff Passan of ESPN says that they're aiming for around a July 1st to 4th time frame to start the season. Um, they're planning to have like an abbreviated spring training starting sometime, you know, in June and they're hoping that they can get things done. But like I said, one of the concerns that pops up is if they do start up, what if a player tests positive, what then? Right. And that I guess is the question. Like if you, I just want to get your guys's take on this. If you guys were, you know, the, let's say you guys are Adam Silver, right? You guys are in his position and you guys say, you know what? We'll have we'll start the season June fifteenth, right? And then everything's going well, and then all of a sudden, boom, player test positive. Would you guys just say, "Uh, what now?" Do you guys cancel the season outright, or do you guys wait? What's, what's I am, the situation? I unfortunately would have to take the the, the brutal position. I mean, I we, you just can't risk people's lives that like that. So yeah, I would unfortunately I would cancel the season. It's just like there's no way around it. I. I would cancel the season, and I think if something like that happens, then, yeah, it's kind of like you're forced to stop everything. But I don't know if they would actually do that, like, considering how much, like, the players have been adamant that they want to finish the season out and, like, how how much effort they've put into continuing the season. I don't see them doing that and then giving up if another player tests positive. I just think the season's probably going to – as ugly as it is – I think the season's going to finish no matter what. Yeah, the 2021 season is just going to be pushed back to December or maybe even January. 
Yeah. I mean, which has been discussed for years now. So I think fans would be kind of be happy in that, in, in, at least in that aspect. Some, most, even. Fair enough. I mean, the only thing we can do is take a wait-and-see approach just like everyone else because the main sports leagues, you know, NBA, NFL, and, and NHL, excuse me, and then, you know, the MLB, they're just kind of like in this holding pattern just like the rest of us. But you know what's not in a holding pattern? The UFC. They are back. They are back to having their fights again. They're going to have them in Jacksonville, Florida. And they're coming back, I think, May 9th. And then they're going to have a few more fights on the 16th and 17th. Don't quote me on that, but that's around the time frame. And then NASCAR is back on May 17th. And then from there, it's going to be the uh, the IndyCar, June 6th. Uh, the PGA Tour and the Australian Football League on June 11th. The German Bundesliga, if you're into world soccer, they're resuming mid-May. So May 16th is when they're planning to restart. And... You know, as we wrap things up here, I just want to get your guys' take on this. What this, this, all these sports coming back, what does that tell you guys about the situation around sports and COVID? Is sports is a symbolism, practically, of like normal everyday life. And I mean, for better or worse, sports coming back could be used as an excuse that, you know, normal life is beginning to uh, turn, uh, turn back to normal. Whether the disease resurfaces, I mean, that's up to fate. I think it just, it's sports have taken the like general feeling of about half of the people, which is they're tired of doing nothing. They want to get back to doing what they do. So, I mean, is it completely safe yet? I wouldn't say so, but I think, I think they're just tired of doing nothing and they're ready to get back to their jobs and their business and make money. So, it's a risk they're taking, and it's up to them. We'll see what happens. You know, that's kind of like where everything stands right now. We'll just see what happens, right? There's not, there's nothing really to, you know, we could look forward to because this is a truly unprecedented time. This has never happened before. So it's just one of those things where we kind of have to just wait it out, wait and see and see what happens. But with that being said, is there is there anything else you guys want to add? No, it's been a great semester. Oh yeah, great semester. Shout out to Jared Castillo, the GOAT, and Bird King. Um, hopefully this was a great last ride for him. It was fun doing this um podcast with you guys for the semester. Yeah, man. Same to you, same to you. I hope you guys uh I hope you guys take this podcast and take it to the next level next semester because th- the foundation is there and I'm sure if you guys do decide to do this again, you guys will do an amazing job, no doubt about it. But With that being said, I just want to thank everyone who's ever listened to this podcast, whether you've been listening to us since day one, or if you've just listened to the podcast now, you know, I just want to say thank you for, for listening to us ramble on for anywhere between 20 and 40 minutes. It's been a real pleasure. It's been a real journey. And I just want to say thank you guys again for the last time. I'm Jared Castillo. I'm Daniel Wynn. And I'm Taj Mayfield. And thank you again for listening.